Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, media podcast friends. We have another bonus episode for you today all about fake news. More on that in a second. But first off, a huge thank you to those of you who responded to our call for donations to keep this show, The Media Podcast, going. Uh, We are compiling a roll call for you at the moment, so you will eventually have your moment in the sun, but we still need support if we're going to keep going. So go to themediapodcast.com slash donate to give either a one-off or a regular voluntary subscription. That's themediapodcast.com slash donate. Thanks. Hello, I'm Ollie Mann, and today on the Media Podcast, Trump, fake news, and the fallout. In association with the Edinburgh TV Festival and their partners, ITN, we bring you an in-depth discussion recorded in front of a live audience on what we can learn following President Trump's victory and the rise of fake news. We'll hear from Brian Stelter, senior media correspondent at CNN, Jim Waterson, political editor at BuzzFeed UK, Aisha Hazarika, former advisor to Ed Miliband, The Guardian's Carol Cadwallader, and Facebook's Patrick Walker. Your host is Channel 4's Jon Snow. I want to start with you, Brian, Uh, You've said there are three main types of fake news. What are they? Well, and it it has, to borrow Ron Burgundy's line, escalated really quickly. I mean, this is something that uh, three months ago was not being discussed in the United States, and and I would say was really not being discussed by journalists in other countries much as uh, either. Uh, It was early work by BuzzFeed and a number of other outlets to really define this term, uh, also by academics who have been studying this rise of misinformation. Uh, I think calling it misinformation or lies or hoaxes can actually help clear some of this up. But the way I defined it on CNN a few months ago, I thought about three buckets of fake stories. And we saw examples of each. The the basic made-up story, uh, a fake news story designed to deceive people, is what I think of as the purest form of the so-called fake news idea. This is a story any of you, any of us up here could put online right now, something totally made up out of our uh, fictional you know, uh, imaginations, uh, designed to g- gain traffic, gain millions of page views, partly through social networks, uh, people spreading it online, partly through old-fashioned email forwards. Uh, the idea here is to profit off of fooling people. <coughs> and of course, we've all known that. Uh, that's been around for as long as people have been talking uh, and printing articles in, in even in newspapers. Uh, but now it is a more concentrated, purified form of made-up news uh, things that are designed to trick people. The second bucket I would describe is a, is a hybrid. 
an article that's half real, half fake, or a little bit real and mostly fake. Uh, I had this happen to me on a personal basis. The first paragraph of the story was all entirely true, and then the last, last four paragraphs were entirely made up. So how you figure out that when you're a news consumer, how you know where the truth stops and the lie starts is awfully confusing. I think of those as, as hybrids, and they're, they're kind of more dangerous because they're more sophisticated versions of fake news, taking a gl glimmer of truth and then building on a lie. And then the third bucket I described a few months ago on, on CNN was these hyper-partisan Facebook, Twitter pages, Twitter pages, uh, anywhere on social media you can find these hyper-partisan communities that are ignorant to the truth. It's not that they are uh, wrong with their, their information, but they are selective, they are, they are confusing, uh, a lot of the lies about Hillary Clinton's health would come from these hyper-partisan pages. Uh, taking, <coughs> taking a true picture, maybe her stumbling, and then building out this crazy story off of it. So uh, I, I think of those three buckets, but you know, I gotta say, even that is three months old and we're probably <laughs> past that point now. Uh, and Margaret Sullivan in the Washington Post this week suggested we should just retire the term fake news altogether. Uh, she could very well be right about that. The term has been exploited, misused, redefined by partisans, including by the president-elect of the United States a few hours ago, uh, calling the most recent reporting about Russia fake news. Uh, that's not the academic ver version of fake news. It's not what the term uh, has come to mean for the BuzzFeeds and CNNs of the world. But uh, we are seeing a redefinition of this language. And so I would say these pure sites, these hoaxes, these made-up stories, uh, that's the pure version of this. That's the pure concentrated problem in front of us. And then from there, there are related problems about why people are labeling real news organizations fake news. But I, I would start with that. I would start with those stories that are very clearly designed to deceive. Well, Jim Watson, it was said that we saw post-truth news here in Britain. Is that the same thing? Uh, I'd say that Brian's definitions are basically ones that I'd agree with, and certainly when I agreed to do this event, I didn't expect to have uh, the president-elect of the United States tweeting that my outlet was fake news, a total political witch hunt last night before I came along here. <laughs> so that was a bit of a shock, and I, you know, I've scribbled out a few of the things I was going to say, but um, uh, and we won't be going into the depth of the allegations, but I'm sure you can read them on BuzzFeed.com. The main thing I want to do in terms of the British uh, take on this is, I was doing some analysis on this, we don't quite have a fake news problem in the UK yet in the very pure sense of completely made up stories. You do not get Jeremy Corbyn is endorsed by the Pope going viral on the UK internet uh, when you did get the equivalent story Donald Trump endorsed by the Pope going viral in the US. I don't quite know why this is yet. My theory is essentially that the British hyperpartisan newspaper industry has filled the gap very, very well already to the point where what goes viral in the UK are stories that fall into the second of those pots, the sort of the kernel of truth with a massive political spin on it, which is essentially what a lot of British newspapers have been doing for decades now. So what's going viral is actually traditional British tabloid journalism in the UK, and it tends to fall into one of three topics, either Islamophobia or some variant thereof, either all Trump, Brexit, UKIP supporters are stupid, and I'm a Remain person, and I'm going to share this article to make me look good, or a third pot, which is something that the mainstream media is not telling you about. And those are the three strands of things that go ultra-viral on the UK internet and encourage fake news of the sort of second variety in the UK. Now, the thing with post-truth is that that then becomes problematic, because is the £350 million claim on the side of a bus false? 
Well, it's probably dubious. I mean, there's, there's money being sent of that sort of variety. You can then do a fact check that no one's going to read and dispute it. But to sort of label it as absolutely fake news when someone's making an outlandish claim is a big call for a news organisation. It's a big call for a social network such as Facebook to ban that just because someone's being a bit deluded. I mean, that's basically what any newspaper's been doing in the UK for decades now. So I actually think it's a much more problematic thing in the UK because we've not actually gone through the outright lie stage, which has happened in most of Europe. In Italy, you've seen it with five-star movement accounts pushing that. In Germany, you're seeing it ahead of their elections. In the US, you definitely saw it, which is why we're discussing it here today. So the issue in the UK media and online and on Facebook is basically hyper-partisan sites generally taking facts completely out of context and then pleasing their audience by meeting one of those three categories I talked about. And they are, you know, it's, it's echo chamber stuff, and it's actually much harder to crack down on because it's very rare that there's a complete falsehood that goes viral in the UK. Well, then, Carol, that perhaps raises the question whether the febrile political situation, both sides of the Atlantic, in each case, somehow facilitated fake news. So my experience actually was that I reported a bit on Brexit after the event. I'm from Wales and I went to Ebbivale, which is a traditionally it's like Nye Bevin's old seat. And one of the things which puzzled me at the time, because I was standing there in front of these gleaming buildings which the EU had paid for, against a new road which the EU had paid for, next to their new train station which the EU had paid for. And, and I was just really curious about how the way that these things were just so visible there, but it had the highest leave vote in Wales. And one of the things that sort of struck me afterwards when I came to start looking at the way that the sources of information which we, we're reading and accessing via Facebook and Google, etc., was just this thing about we didn't know where that was coming from. It was opaque to me at that time that we didn't know what pieces people were reading or what source of information there were. Mm. And actually, we now have no access to that because it's, it's kind of all in the dark. What people were seeing on their individual Facebook pages and what they were seeing in their individual Google search results are highly personalised to them. And we have no idea. That's unrecorded anywhere. So it was just the sort of the way that now looking back on what's happened in the last year, where people were getting their information from, what they were reading, is sort of unknowable and lost oh. forever, really. And I think that's one of the things I found most frightening, looking back and trying to sort of understand what's been happening. Well, Brian, I mean, there, there are two specific things about the, the American situation. One, did the conventional media, or mainstream media, difficult phrases, do enough to call <laughs> Trump out, first of all? And then secondly, did people become dependent on unverified, untrustworthy, but new and perhaps potentially interesting sites. Yeah, I'm sitting here, I had never quite thought about it the way that you just described, Carol, this idea that, uh, that we have no idea what, uh, what this hypothetical voter was seeing on his or her Facebook page, Facebook feed, what their friends were sharing, because it was all algorithmic and personalized. And, and it does, it gets to this sense of an alternate reality that was possible to exist in before Election Day. And obviously it's still possible today, no matter what country you're in. In the U.S., there's certainly that sense that there's a very strong alternate reality on the right. There is, to some degree, also an alternate reality that's, that's in existence on the left. But on the right, there are more media outlets that are designed to feed that. Uh, and there was this perception after the election that uh, were Trump voters living in this alternate reality on Facebook, sharing these stories about Clinton that were lies, and that's what caused them to vote for Trump. I, I don't think we can say that. I don't think that's provable. 
partly because, you know, everyone's on their own version of the internet. But uh, I think there's a hundred reasons why the vote ended up the way it did. Uh, I view it as a hundred rolls of the dice. But Would we even I, be having this debate if Hillary had won? The fake news conversation would be happening, but it would be different. There has been some liberal hysteria. At the same time, there's been a, a real academic and journalistic attempt to figure this out. And some efforts with Facebook and Twitter and Google to try to tackle some of the most clearly made up stories. You know, I think back to last April, one of my favorite Donald Trump quotes of the year. He said to Chuck Todd on Meet the Press, all I know is what's on the internet. And a lot of us kind of are actually the same way if we want to be honest with ourselves. All we know is what we see online. Uh, we are not on a minute by minute basis fact checking every single word we see on the internet. I would like to say the mainstream media provided all the information voters needed. I, I firmly believe if you go back to the transcripts of the broadcasts, voters had all the factual information they wanted and needed. Uh, some folks, however, chose not to seek that out. And I'm really encouraged by Facebook's current effort, this experiment, to put labels below disputed fake news stories. Well, let's, let's giving you Pat at least an option to find the truth. Let's bring Patrick in now. I mean, what, what, what do you, I mean Facebook's come in for a lot of criticism <clears throat> yeah. over what was carried to some extent in parity between fake and mainstream, mm -hmm. what measures have you taken? Yeah, I'm, I mean, Facebook is a new sort of platform. I mean, it's only 12 years old, 12, 13 years old. The news feed is, is 10 years old. It's, it's evolving. Uh, and Facebook has become an important source for information and source for news. We don't create that news at Facebook. We work with partners such as CNN and The Guardian and BuzzFeed and, and, and Channel 4 and others to, to help them broaden their audience, distribute. Uh, and we also allow people to share anything instantaneously, which creates its own challenges, of course, because you have to make sure that you have safeguards in place for people to be able to flag things or identify things that are either harmful or somehow, perhaps, in, in this particular case, something they feel might be misinformation. So uh, we already have longstanding community standards with regard to content that would be you know, hate speech, uh, violence uh, and things that might be harmful to a 13-plus audience, the misinformation and hoax uh, situation has is, is, is really pushed us to drive a whole bunch of new initiatives that, that address it specifically. Uh, one of those is easier uh, reporting for users, so upper right, being able to flag something. Um, that just creates more signals for us to then respond to. The other one is uh, flagging things that are uh, perhaps untrue or maybe unconfirmed. And so we're working with third parties, fact-checking organizations that we can kind of get to the bottom of the worst of the worst, the things that spike quickly. And we're working with fact-checking organizations. Initially in the U.S., we'll be, we'll be expanding this internationally, um, and organizations that follow the Pointers International Code of Principles for, for fact-checking. Um, what this does is create, it doesn't mean people can't share it. It doesn't mean it comes off if it's not against our community standards, but it, it creates a warning label that says, you know, if you share this, you know, this is potentially um, uh, misinformation. Um, it also will deprecate it, and it means you can't then also run ads on it, or you can't make it into an ad, or you can't promote it. So it, 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 we, we, we see a lot of the effort that goes into this misinformation is actually financially driven, which means me to the next one, which is really going after where the money is generated. And this is something we definitely could have done better uh, before. Um, this uh, environment recently has really helped us dig deeper and drive faster to root out the problem. And we found that there are a number of organizations that were trying to mirror or appear to be something that they're not. And so we're going after that. We're making sure that you can't replicate or create a, a spoof site. We go back and we check before you're able to use our ads, you know, that you actually have some sort of verified history. Um, and this way, we think, will we'll, we'll hit a large portion of it. And then the next bit is just constant 
iteration of our newsfeed values, which is very much focused on authenticity um, and, and people being able to adjust uh, and inform themselves. And, and we, we read signals from people's everyday usage. If something is read and it's not forwarded or it's stopped somewhere in the middle, then that's a signal to us that that might not be an accurate or, or useful bit of information, therefore it will be deprecated. So there's all these signals, and these are things that are still in early uh, phases. We've done workshops with news organizations in, in seven cities around Europe in the last two months as well. So a lot of the work we're doing is listening and collaborating and trying to understand how we can do better together. But it's not an easy problem to solve, and it is a bit of a game of whack-a-mole as well, if you know that term, and just that you know, as, as soon as you start to implement some sort of policy, there are always some elements that are trying to use this technology for, for, for something that might not be so wholesome for democracy. Well, it's interesting that you're going to these seven cities. I mean, one of the things that I think you detected, Aisha, and which I think was apparent, was that there was a very big diversity between London, metropolitan London, and uh, the country. And, and it probably was true of New York and the country yes. and, and, and Los Angeles and the country. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was a huge, huge disconnect. And what I found, particularly speaking to MPs and myself going kind of around and about, and of course being a media commentator as well, there was, a, there was such a diversion. You'd be in a television studio with lots of commentators from London, and they would say very, very confidently, there is no way we are leaving the EU. Absolutely no. And this was right up until before the Sunderland results dropped. I was in a, a, a ITV studios. But you would speak to MPs, particularly Labour MPs, with northern constituencies, and they would bring back intelligence saying, look, I've been door knocking every weekend for seven weeks and I haven't met a single person on the doorstep who wants to vote to remain in the EU. And they were bringing this information back, but there was just, we will, for some reason, we just didn't want to, to hear it. And I think that's... Partly, I mean, I found this on the 20, in the 2015 general election <coughs> campaign, particularly with Twitter and Facebook, because political campaigning, by its nature, is, is hyper-partisan. And as Jim said, our traditional, particularly our print media, are broadcast less so because there are different impartiality rules. But our newspapers are very, very partisan. There's a conflation between news and comment as well. And I think that has just made people think... What politics is, and having a view now, is about being hyper-partisan, and it's about going into your comfort zone, not really looking at what's actually happening, but going into a safe space where you, you get confirmed what you want to hear. So for the, in the 2015 general election, we thought Ed Miliband was going to be Prime Minister because we had this phenomenon called mm. Millie fandom, because some lovely sort of 14-year-old girl was like, I think Ed's quite hot. And like, I know, just bear with me, but like... Um, <laughs> and it kind of... So we were all in, our, in the echo chamber of our Twitter feed and it was like, yeah, this is like going really, really well. And, you know, and again, of course, there was the stuff about the polls. I mean, the other thing that comes into all the, the fake news and the politics is the polling industries had quite a tough time for not catching big things that were happening, Brexit, Hillary and things. So we had polling companies saying, oh, Labour's on course to being the biggest party. But we would go out on the doorstep and we would hear something different. But then we'd look at our sort of Twitter feeds and our Facebook and everybody, including senior politicians, senior strategists, senior political editors, everyone retreated into the comfort zone that they, they wanted to. So there is a very dangerous disconnect between us and 
London who have lots of power and influence and a voice and what is going on with the rest of the country. And, of course, that's essentially, in my view, what Brexit was all about. Well, um, Carol, one very big entity we haven't mentioned is Google, and you, you've written extensively about the role of Google. What is it? Well, Google isn't sitting on the stage and answering questions about their role in the news and information ecosystem. Oh, we can beat them up then. So, <laughs> you can never be sure they're not present right. here in some form. <laughs> yes, I understand they might be in the room. So um, I, think, I think the thing is that the issues are so big. What is at stake is so massive. Democracy is at stake. Our political system is at stake. These are massive questions. And the role of Google and Facebook is absolutely huge in it. So it's all very well for us to sit here and opine, but actually the technology giants who are serving us these absolutely... We don't know how they are working. I've got no idea how your algorithm surfaces news to individual users. I've got no idea, despite <coughs> writing about it for the last month, how Google's search algorithm works and why it is surfacing right-wing extremist hate websites you know, in answer to very simple queries. Just mention so the, 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 Jew, so the Jewish question. So, so, well, it started out, I think I just started out typing Jews into Google, the search bar. And this led me very quickly to, I, I think I wrote, are Jews? And Google gave me the suggestion, evil. And I was like, well, that's an interesting question to ask Google. Let's see what happens when I just click return and, and ask that. And I got eight out of ten of the top search results were to anti-Semitic hate sites, which said, yes, Jews are evil. And from there, I, I got led down a kind of, into a sewer, really, of like, I suddenly, I had, you know, the, the internet, we use it all the time, every day. I write about the internet as well, you know, I have, from a sort of mainstream point of view. And I, I had no idea that this content was there being answered to these very simple questions about, um, any of the sort of contentious issues, Google was serving up these neo-Nazi websites even, to, you know, just very simple, plain questions. And, um, and I, I couldn't get any answers from Google. And I found this incredibly frustrating because I think it is absolutely our right as citizens to know how this information is being delivered to us, on what grounds, what is authoritative. Who is deciding that? Patrick. And engineers are deciding that. Let's get People Patrick in on Facebook that. are deciding yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I can, um, you know, the reason I'm here is because, of course, it's important that we engage in dialogue. We take our role in the news ecosystem very seriously. Um, I think it's important to understand some of the principles behind the news feed to, to help better inform that thinking. Um, and we published this, but I think it's worth reiterating, you know, Facebook is a place where people connect with their friends, with their family. Um, they go on there for a multitude of different reasons, and they make choices as to who they connect with, who they follow, who they unfollow. How many of you have uh, ever unfollowed somebody, or you, you asked to see less of what they put on the Facebook page? Right? Quite a few of you. Um, so we respect people's choices. How many of you have more friends on Facebook than you probably interact with on any given day? Right? Pretty much everyone. So if you were to just leave it up to some sort of chronological order, what you see on your newsfeed, you would have thousands of posts in no order whatsoever that would somehow relate to what we've learned from you is important. That, that post about your cousin's baby would be buried you know, 150 or 350 posts down. Um, and, or that news article that your best friend shared on a topic that, that, that you've informed us is important to you might never be seen. 
Um, and we've also seen that we did things chronologically, which we've done, that people uh, consume less, they share less, they use less, um, which means we're not serving them. Uh, and so we adjust the, the algorithm based on friends and family first, based on authentic communication. Um, we communicate when we do change that algorithm, but we can't publish the algorithm because that would also create its own problems in terms of people trying to manipulate it for their own purposes. But it does have a very practical reason behind it. So I think people have to understand that without an algorithm to help shape something towards your interests, um, it would be, it would be you know, a cacophony of, of information. At the same time, you know, Facebook does strengthen weak ties and as you all indicated, you are in contact with more people on Facebook than you are in your daily lives. Therefore, you are more likely to get a diversity of information and opinions through Facebook than you might otherwise be getting through your picking up a paper at the local uh, newsstand, communicating with somebody at the office, sending an email to your friend. So, I mean, it, it's, it's a tool, and people can use it in which way they, they, they see fit. Unfortunately, some people try to manipulate it, but we're trying to react to people's desires and, and interests create something very useful and, and allow people to communicate, but we also have this ongoing battle of making sure we keep the bad elements at bay, and, and that's something we need to do collaboratively. But, you know, we understand the sentiment, but it's something that we have to address together. Uh, Carol? As you can't publish the algorithm, but you can certainly let experts come in and look at it who are going to be coming from a, a more independent angle. I think that's something which is... A, what, a, what is an expert? It's, but they're, they're, yeah. There's something called algorithmic auditing, and that's a sort of movement in academia, which is, so we've got these closed companies who, you say Facebook is a tool, but it's a massive corporate which is just trying to make money from us. And, and how you are making that money from us and how you are using data is something that I think there is a public interest to understand better. And I think right. we all, well, we, we're, we're, all, we're, all, we're I mean, all troubled by what's happening in the world right now. Yeah. And I, I take your point about yeah. working together. Yeah. I think that's very key. Yeah. But it's not enough that corporate information doesn't want you to sort of share that. It's that well, we, we, we need it. Let's pause it there, because I just want to ask something which is also very germane, which we haven't covered. And I want to ask you three, who is better at this, the right or the left? Aisha. The right. Uh, the left is gaining in the UK. They're doing quite well with sites like the Canary. <laughs> I'd say just a little more. Um, so I think, I think the left is, is, is adopting quite quickly uh, a, a rampant disregard for the facts, particularly on things like Brexit uh, and particularly on things like supporting Jeremy Corbyn, um, which, you know, I think they're just fighting fire with fire. Is the hatred that uh, Carol spelt out a possession of the left or the right? I think that's mainly on the right, but I mean, I'm, in terms of fake news and spreading things, then I just, think the left... Just to come at that, I think certainly, particularly with Corbyn, that's the really interesting phenomenon we're seeing, because their narrow approach, their media strategies, in terms of mainstream media, we're going to sort of disregard that a bit, and we're going to pursue much more on the social media, the Facebook, the, the Twitter, this kind of hyper-partisan thing. But I think essentially the left is just a bit softer when it comes to this stuff. The right is just much harder. It's much, I mean, the, the, they own the language of populism much with more ease than the left. Sometimes when we were like debating, you know, in, over the last couple of years, it feels like, you know, we turn up with like a potato gun to sort of a machete fight in terms of our language. And, and, and now, you know, the left, as Jim said, is trying to tool itself up. But it's really hard to be really ag that aggressive about food banks. You know yeah. what I mean? In terms of that applies to journalism as well. I mean, yes, in, in the US, there's more of an appetite on the right for these fake sites right now. Uh, certainly there was more of an appetite for pro-Trump, anti-Hillary stories than there was for anti-Trump, uh, than there was for anti-Trump, pro-Hillary stories. That was true sort of uh, in the fake news world before the election. There is, however, now some appetite for 
anti-Trump BS on the left. So there's, there's some of that going on. What I hear us all talking about are the, the consequences of the world's the best thing ever that's happened in my life. Right? The only reason I'm on this stage is because everyone in the world can now be a publisher. It is the single greatest thing that's ever happened in, in, in my life. And yet we're talking about the, the dire downsides of it all, the consequences of people not being able to publish lies. I think this is about information warfare and about journalists and news organizations having to be a part of that war, having to be on that war footing and fight back. When Matt Drudge, as he did last summer, posted pictures of Hillary Clinton falling down the stairs and didn't put them in context and say that it was icy that day in February and that she slipped and that it happens to all of us if cameras follow us every day, news outlets have to fight back at that. Otherwise, and by the way, the Clinton campaign should have also. The campaign also should have and didn't, didn't do enough. But I think news outlets and reporters have to accept more of this reality and, and be on a war footing mm. to respond to more of it. Well, that, that really does take us to the last big area that I just wanted to get you all engaged in before we turn to the audience, and that is how does the media of all types rebuild trust? Jim. Um, well, at BuzzFeed, we, we try and sort of wade in a little bit and engage with things like fake news yeah. and sort of be, we are of the internet, we understand how this go vira goes viral, we understand the algorithms, so we're going to try debunking things, we're going to try fact-checking that thing you've seen all over your Facebook feed, and we do find there's a big audience for that. However, it's never going to be as big an audience as the total lie that you've just seen on a meme spreading across your friend's Facebook and your aunt saying, I can't believe this, in the comments below it. Hey, at least your aunt's onto the right thing. Yeah, you no, can't no. believe it. <laughs> Rebuilding trust, Carol? I don't know. Is there, I mean, I think well, we're in a bad place. <laughs> good honest answer. It is a good honest answer. I mean, I think the thing which concerns me more is that it's bigger than these individual news organisations. We are minnows compared to the power of Facebook and Google, and not just because. They've eaten our lunch in terms of advertising, you know, which has said the financial model of quality journalism has been destroyed by Facebook and Google, and there is no obvious remedy for that. It gets harder for us every year to invest in quality journalism. But beyond that, it's that these platforms are editing our reality, our news, the information we get, and they are pretending to be platforms. And I don't believe they are. I believe that you are editing content. I think that algorithms are editing what we are seeing. And I think you really need to own up and take responsibility for that. Don't know where to start, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. I'm a former news journalist. I worked for the BBC. I was covering conflict zones in Cambodia, East Timor, Pakistan. And to get a story out 20 years ago, I had to film it on a tape, avoid all sorts of uh, horrible things along the way to some newsfeed location where I had to bribe a guard, bribe an engineer, pay $3,000 to send pictures back to London, maybe in time for the 10 o'clock news at the time. And it was dodgy, and it was very hard to get information out, and it was very limited, and your perspective was also very limited. Technology has evolved to the point where you have this mass democratization of media, which makes people very uncomfortable because it means new rules. But today, you know, we empower thousands and thousands of news organizations and journalists around the world to create content, instantaneously distribute that. But it also means we have to look at users creating content and distributing internationally, globally, instantaneously as well. And it does create challenges. So how do you, you can't put the genie back in the bottle of technology. You have to find ways to address it. And we're doing a lot in that direction. But I think you're looking down a telescope at a, at a pretty broad landscape. And, and there are so many more positives to the, this technology allowing people to share. Channel 4 News itself has gone from 5 million views per month to 250 million views per month globally 
of their video on, on Facebook. So you know, there's a distribution of content opportunity, but we can't ignore these concerns because they're, they're very real, and we have to work together to address them. Jim. I'm just really quickly, given we're all having a go at Facebook right now, um, the thing that really fascinates me in the UK is we still go on about Rupert Murdoch and the Murdoch press controlling the narrative. I mean, he's selling about a combined, what, 1.9 million newspapers a day? Half the UK's population is logging into Facebook, and one tweet to that algorithm which prioritizes a certain sort of story um, which ultimately that algorithm is controlled by someone in California can have a way bigger effect on what people are actually reading than anyone like Rupert Murdoch could nowadays. So keep the pressure on the Facebooks and Googles and, and on, on the social networks to encourage more high quality, to push quality up higher in the newsfeed. But I think that this issue of rebuilding trust is on us. It's, I wouldn't put it on Facebook. It, you know, it is on individual journalists and their news organizations. So long as we survive. Uh, there is there's that. <laughs> I, but I also there's try not to. Good journalism happening. I try not to assume the worst about the audience either. I think a lot of readers and viewers are just hungry for some information. Yeah. And the, the text messages, the emails, the viewer emails I get, a lot of people, yes, there are these loud, angry voices polluting my Facebook feed. And I sometimes even delete the comments. But oh, most readers and most viewers, I think actually are really desperate for journalism right now, and desperate for real, real journalism right now. And that's how we rebuild trust, by providing it and by taking them on that journey with us so that we don't seem like these far away reporters who don't care about their lives, but we're actually in with their lives. In some way, surely, Patrick, we have to break the parity of esteem for conventional and new media. Um, what do you mean exactly? I mean the social media, I mean for a time it's been yep. possible to see a news feed in <coughs> which there is a, a mix mm -hmm. of the one and the other. Yeah. Prioritizing and, and, and perhaps identifying, as I think you are now going to do, yeah. uh, is, is going to make some difference. Yeah, absolutely. Be. I mean, you know, again, we're going to go off the signals of, of, of third parties, of, of the community. We can't be the arbiters of truth. There's a million shades of grey in this scenario. Um, and so we have to create the right system that re reacts to these sorts of scenarios. Mm. Um, but we have to also appreciate that we are, all of us together, and we work with all of you, mm. you know, creating an opportunity for mass distribution of information that can mm. also be instantaneously retorted if, if there is something you feel is untrue, which mm. isn't necessarily the case through print. I don't think there was any golden age of truth historically, <laughs> right. right? I've actually well, seen I, I, Facebook come a little bit of, a, of, you all have changed the way you talk about this quite a bit in the past year. Mm. So I would give a little bit of credit on that. I used to be so right. frustrated. You all had no interest in poppies, popping people's filter bubbles at all. Yeah. And I'm seeing that change at Facebook. Yeah. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. I do need to find out whether there is anybody here from Google. Uh, and if so, ah, how kind. Do you, do you want to say anything, uh, perhaps, as, as, as Google has been mentioned a few times? Well, I could sit here for a very long time and talk about all the... Um, things that I disagree with that Carol has written about in the last uh, few weeks and uh, disagree with um, quite profoundly of some of the things that um, she said, not least the... Could, could you um, just say who you are? Sorry, my name's Tom Price. I, I, I work for Google. I'm, um, I also work for YouTube. We're one of the sponsors of the Edinburgh, Edinburgh International Television Festival, so we come to these events. But yeah, I, I could talk for a very long time about where we disagree, you know, honest disagreement about some of the things that she's written, about the way that um, it's been interpreted, and I would certainly disagree with the implication that we um, don't like talking about these issues or, or, or are trying to hide things or anything like that. Um, but maybe it's more helpful to focus on where um, I think we, we do agree, um, and I, I do agree when she says that um, this is a big issue and that we should, we should talk about it and we should have a debate. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I do agree that um, we don't always get everything right when it comes to serving the correct answers. I mean, some of the um, issues that um, she highlighted around the Holocaust, I mean, clearly that was, was not a good search experience. It was the wrong answer that we were providing, and, and that is something that we look to tackle at. We actually have made some uh, changes to try and tackle that, and we're thinking about it quite deeply sort of going forward. But I mean, Patrick has spelt out a strategy for Facebook. Is there, is there a strategy that Google is pursuing? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a range of different issues that you're talking about here. So it's, 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 it's hard to talk about, you know, a, a, exactly what you, you, you mean by that. But in terms of, like, our algorithm, which I think is the sort of main issue, um, how we um, make sure that the information that we're serving you is um, accurate and is helpful, um, of course, is something that, I mean, that's the very foundation of the, the company that we are. It's something that we think about all the time. Um, if you come at it with an agenda, as uh, Carol does, that says these are all big corporates who only care about making money out of us and are trying to eat my lunch, then, yeah, we do question sometimes whether we get a, uh, a fair hearing um, with an agenda like that. But it is undoubtedly true that we, we think about these issues and that we work to kind of try and improve our algorithm um, on stuff like this all the time. Um, and I'm you know, happy to talk about it in, in public forums. Thank you very much. Other, other questions from the audience? We have a microphone. It would be good if you could wait for it, um, if we come to you first. Uh. I was just wondering, um, on the eating, eating of the lunch uh, question, what, what, what the panel... Could you uh, say who you are? Ben Dow from Radio Times. Thanks. What they think of perhaps top-slicing some of the massive profits that Facebook and Google make and investing in, in journalism, perhaps in the form of bursaries or even a government fund or something like that. I just thought it was a possible question. Patrick? You know, we actually have some, some upcoming announcements with regard to deeper collaboration with the journalism, the networks, the entire ecosystem. It's something that we're already investing a lot of time in. My team is responsible for relationships with, you know, thousands of news um, publishers across Europe, Middle East, and Africa. We have teams across Asia Pacific, North America. We work with them in three main areas. One is building audience that can be monetized either through branded content, conversion to subscription, which, by the way, is growing very well for a lot of news organizations like the New York Times, the FT. Um, and then also we help with uh, new revenue opportunities, subscription uh, being one of them, but also new ad formats we're going to be launching to drive um, revenue on video, for example, where you're seeing mass explosion of consumption. We've been a bit slow on that, but we need to step that up. 
And the third part is technological collaboration. So we put in the hands of these organizations um, access to 360 cameras, virtual reality opportunities that, that help us collaboratively develop new types of storytelling. Um, so there are lots of different solutions to it. Um, but you have to also keep in mind that the, the, the news and publishing industry uh, and some of the challenges financially way predates even the existence of Facebook. It's, you know, it's a decades-long uh, challenge of, of adapting to, to changes in people's consumption habits and technology as music is seen and TV also is seeing. So it's not some sort of silver bullet. Uh, it's a collaborative effort. But our focus is team collaboration with organizations like The Guardian um, to find new ways to address these challenges. Aisha. Well, it's been really interesting because we've just had this massive discussion about Leveson going on right now. And just, just for people who don't know what Leveson is. Leveson um, was a public inquiry which came up with some recommendations to improve uh, regulation of the press. And what's really, I mean, there's a lot of controversy about it. What has been proposed is, is not popular. And there's, a, there's a, a, a thing called Section 40, which has been consulted upon, and that offers quite a lot of costs and damages, advantages and disadvantages to, to newspapers. But if you take a step back from it, Levison is wildly controversial, huge issues about kind of a free and fair press. But what policymakers are not doing is looking, as you were saying, is looking right across the piece. You have to look at news as you find it. And regional and local journalism is hugely trusted still in this country, but it is suffering hideously financially. The, the press is um, struggling, newspapers. But all Levison did was look at newspapers, and we all know that that's just a tiny part of the news ecosystem. Very few people buy a newspaper anymore. Most people consume their news through Twitter or Facebook or Google or whatever. So I think that's quite an interesting idea. But when people are talking about press regulation, it is mad to just look at the print media Broadcasters are covered by Ofcom, but what you're proposing could be quite a good idea. It was something that Leveson actually kind of looked at in terms of could, could some of the bigger news op organisations um, help subsidise sort of local journalism things. Right, there was a, a question here on, on, on the far side, if we could have the microphone over there. Yep. So, um, could you clearly, you are? my name is Frank Radis. I'm a former journalist and a current marketing consultant. And uh, bad or good, uh, the internet distribution platforms and news organizations are sources now. Brian actually did a, a whole segment recently on what Trump's sources were. And I think the idea of trying to co-opt these sources to work with journalists as opposed to us journalists fighting them isn't such a, uh, such a bad thing. But my real question is, and I'm going to go back to where we began this conversation about the documents that were released last night. Should we have published those documents? Well, <laughs> Jim. CNN didn't, so. Uh, as I say, I woke up this morning having made some notes for today and certainly did not expect my site to have published uh, a series of allegations about the president-elect which would have prompted his comments. Um, I would say that they are unverified, uh, and yet this is a document which is being discussed across uh, media circles, across security circles. If it is being briefed to the president-elect, then it's better to be able to see what he's being briefed. So that's certainly our corporate line. You know, but I, I, would, I would argue that in, in the past, documents of this type would be released. Journalists would look at them, then they would call through them and determine what parts of those documents were uh, verifiable or were worthy of uh, being uh, reported upon. Uh, as opposed to simply mass uh, distributing them, which is something that we can now do because of these distribution platforms. So is that a good thing or a bad thing, Brian? 
I'm still figuring that out, to tell you the truth. Uh, I, you know, my gut reaction to this this morning was that, yes, BuzzFeed decided to publish the documents. Someone would have. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I'm, I'm assuming that we're in a world where this kind of raw material is always going to end up somewhere on the internet, and I'm operating on that premise. Uh, if it hadn't been BuzzFeed, it would have been Mother Jones or someone else who had these documents. But is, but there, I, is, there, any, is there any sense <laughs> in which you have a strong suspicion yeah. that they are fake. Well, this is where I'm, this is where I'm interested in the, where this, this fake news conversation comes back to. I, you, are, you know, some of the claims in these documents are, are they're misspellings, there are things that are, that are checkable, and there are reasons why CNN and other outlets chose not to publish the information in these documents because some of it did not, did not check out. I'll leave that to the Carl Bernsteins who are, who are doing it for CNN. Thinking down the road here, thinking about what, what fake news means in five or 10 years, <laughs> The ability to lie and mislead and misinform is only going to get more sophisticated. And I think we've got we've to face that head on, that we're talking about sort of version 2.0 of a problem, but the Facebooks of the world and the CNNs of the world have to think about the version 5.0, completely fake video that seems like it's real, made up documents intended to trick people. It is only going to get easier and easier and easier to trick the public. And that's why I say we have to be on a war footing and be just as aggressive about fighting back and responding to what is going to be an increasingly sophisticated misinformation landscape. Whether, whether some of that's propaganda from governments or whether it's people trying to make money through, through page views and, and, and video views. Yes, new media needs to get its house in order. But I also, sorry, could you give us a... Sorry, Neil Griffiths, um, uh, Blink. We're a, a media market research agency. But it seems to me that old media needs to get its house in order because it seems... Looking from the outside, you know, a couple of years ago when Jon Stewart was hosting The Daily Show, for some people in America, he was the most trusted news source <laughs> in America, and he would say, but we're doing a fake news show. So that's, a, that's an issue. And I would say to a certain degree that, that news, real news, is turning into entertainment shows. And so if you've got a fake news anchor being the most trusted journalist or the most trusted person on American television, and orthodox news channels actually becoming and I think you know I think channel 4 news is slightly guilty of this too of being often more an entertainment show than a news show where do we go how you know how how does orthodox news orientate itself so we know you know who we're supposed to be listening to perhaps I could call on my editor uh, Ben DePere to um, uh, to address that um, thanks for, thanks for those comments uh, <laughs> I mean, I find them entertaining because uh, I've just been through the, the period of a really intense year of news. Uh, we've just been through a three-month period where we had the only uh, journalist news team in Aleppo. Uh, we led on Aleppo for probably 20 out of 30 days before Christmas. I didn't find anything that we did from Aleppo entertaining. If you did, I'd go and see someone. Um, that's, uh, cheap, that's quite a cheap shot. Sorry, so that's let me just... That is not it's, Sorry, sorry, no, 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 okay, let me, look, I'm, I'm going to carry on. So no cheap shot. That's f fine. You start it. Anyway, anyway, we do have a, we, 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 we do kick around the topics of the day. We've become much more interested in identity politics. The voices in, in the world have become louder because the world has become an angrier place. You can tell that from my reaction to you. But I don't think um, Channel 4 News as a verified, we have 
um, amazing processes at Channel 4 News to make sure that we don't uh, tell untruths. I, mean, I, I can't say that we, we will never. I can't say that everything is completely true. But the process we go through in order to put journalism to air is unbelievably long. It's unbelievably complicated, and it costs a lot of money. Um, so turning from so your question to, to yours, just I, 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 can I ask you a question? Sure. How much money do you think Facebook made from fake news? And how much money do you think you're spending combating it? Because that, for, for every pound, at least, that uh, media organizations make from Facebook, you make at least the same amount, if not more. There's no transparency, so we don't know. Mm. And the money that these people have made from making up news that has affected political events and that has cheapened the value of news overall, I wonder how much that is and how much it's made for Facebook and how much you are spending yourselves on combating that. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's very hard to answer that with any specifics. I think we're doing a lot to go directly at the source of any people that are financially benefiting from distribution of misinformation and hoaxes. There are a lot of people that are, that are buying ads on Facebook for all sorts of different purposes. And there are also mainstream news organizations that are broadcasting interviews, speeches, and, and conversations with people that may or may not be truthful. I mean, there's so many shades of gray, like I said. I think the, the important thing is that we find a way to address any areas of, of misinformation. We find ways to increase revenue directly to partners, such as yourselves, um, where we do work collaboratively on global distribution of, of content for, 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 good, for legitimate purposes. So that's a tough question, but I do think it is an Im important question as well that was originally asked, which is, you know, are, we, are we generally moving towards a space where um, we're, we're being a bit more sensational as, as, as an industry? And I say that more as a former journalist as well. Um, and is, is social media also just reflecting a shift in, in, in media patterns? I mean, you just gave me a great reporting question that I want to go try to work on. I want to figure out the answer to that about how much money. If I can just add one thought about entertainment, um, just 15 seconds to be a big nerd, we've got to figure out better media literacy for, for countries, for publics, for populations. Uh, media literacy is a boring phrase, but it, we're desperate for it right now. And uh, we need better understanding of why, why the news does look so bright and colorful and sexy and entertaining, and yet is factual. Uh, and we need to explain to our viewers how we figure out the truth and how much money we spend on it. Uh, it's, it's high past time for more of those efforts. And I think, I'm glad there's conversations in newsrooms now about media literacy. I think you do raise a good point about infotainment, particularly, um, I mean, just look, like Nigel Farage has now a nightly show. Uh, Katie Hopkins is just getting masses of airtime. Sometimes we all watch Question Time, which is still, you know, the, a huge source of kind of news for people who want to just tune into a bit of politics. And that's kind of <laughs> clickbait. It's that kind of visual clickbait now. So I think you do raise a good point about organisations kind of thinking about that as well and just being mindful, but not like just looking for the sensational and everything. Um, Jane Martinson from The Guardian. Um, it seems to me that the story that broke overnight... Um, is really important, and we should talk about it more. Sorry, Jim. But one of the things that it occurs to me in all this discussion is that economics is at the basis of this, and the reason why this fight back that you keep mentioning, Brian, is going to be so difficult. Because really what we have here is a trusted news organisation that says, this is unverified, but somebody's going to publish it, 
and we know that it makes sense to put it out there. Now, that line that is blurring between... How much money has BuzzFeed made off of publishing it? Well, that, that will be right. really interesting. Right. Um, Two million page views. The, but that is blurring the line, isn't it, between this sort of, we are trusted news organisations, we check everything as far as we can. That's been incredibly difficult to hold that line in the age of social media. And Facebook and Google have taken 85% of every dollar spent in advertising. The model, the economic model of sort of journalism is incredibly difficult to keep going with this sense that we will spend time and money to actually make sure it's right. Because now you will make money not by being last, not by being Newsnight at 10.30 and having an intelligent debate about it, but making sure you have someone putting something online that says, ha, look at this. The trending um, uh, hashtag is obviously about Watergate today. And it may turn out to be a great story, but that to me, isn't that the biggest question? How do we stop the economics of the business, meaning that fake news is too tempting for all of us? Patrick? <laughs> I mean, in our analysis, you know, well less than 1% of, of, in, our, in our own analysis of information that was shared in the run-up to the election was something that we would consider misinformation or hoaxes. Now, that's too big a number. It's way too big a number, and that's why we are investing a lot of time and energy in, 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 in tackling this directly. Um, you know, we are all mostly you know, commercial organizations, but it doesn't mean we don't have principles, we don't have missions that we're trying to fulfill that are, that are of a higher nature, and we definitely have that. We're about connecting people. And, and, and the other thing I think people have to be aware of, when people access their information on Facebook, they're accessing Channel 4 on Facebook, they're accessing the BBC on Facebook, they're accessing Al Jazeera on Facebook, they're accessing news, legitimate news organizations that do great journalism through this platform as they are accessing pictures of their friends and their family. So we are interlinked in finding solutions through technology, but also uh, through education. And, and you know, we're going to be making some announcements soon on trying to get deeper into solving this collaboratively. But it is not a simple one-tweet sort of solution. Um, I think Ben asked a very specific question, how much money? I think Carl Bernstein's name is being bandied around at the moment in association with this story. He said, follow the money. You haven't answered that question. And this question of the, the and also Jane's follow-up about the fact is, is that you, you, you said it was nonsense that you're just big corporates making money, but you are big corporates making money. It is at the heart of everything, and I think that's uh, Well, I'm not, I'm not like trying to dodge the question. I'm just saying it's very hard to quantify something that also is, a, is an area that's hurting shades of grey. Now, we are going after the worst of the worst in terms of sources that are inaccurate and we're doing a lot of work there. It is an imperfect process. We also have systems where we do put our hands up when we do make mistakes and you know again you know look at publishing if, if something that's a misinformation or it's shared through a newspaper or even a website of a news organization gets retracted it may be days later or buried on page 36. In social media world these things can be addressed immediately publicly people have much more of a voice today than they've ever had and it just means the landscape is shifting. We have to adapt quickly, like and Brian it's, said. It's not just Google and visibly. It's also politicians. Yeah. Donald Trump said Google, this is true, right? He said Google was rigged against him to try to steal the election from him. I, I'm trying really hard now in January to remember what he said during the campaign because there was so much that was untrue that we need to keep coming back to to remember even if news outlets do their best and even if social networks figure out how to combat this stuff, if we have politicians... Mm -hmm misleading people, not in the way we've always seen for 100 years, but in these new ways, these new kinds of lies, 
I think, I don't, yeah. None of us on this panel have a solution for that. I'm very conscious that we are at the end of our oh. session. There were a lot of hands up. Um, I, I think it'd be the most democratic way to end with a couple of points from people from the audience. There were two people over here. Uh, yeah, on the far side there, if you could get the microphone. Yeah. Um, we make. Could you say who you are? I'm, I'm Anna. I'm from Princess Productions, and we make entertainment shows. Um, and we're doing some work at the moment for the BBC with the Daily Mash. And I just wonder, sort of the flip side to the question the gentleman over here asked is, is there a worry with, a, with new rules and a crackdown on fake news that there are implications or consequences along the line for satire? And at what point do we end up having to hashtag joke like we have to hashtag ad? Um, and it's a slightly flip side of the question, but I thought it might be worth addressing. Right. Are you going to hashtag? You know, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I, have, I, I, I had, my head had not gone there yet in this conversation, so... That's fascinating. Huh. I mean, I think actually what has been so missing from our political discourse is really good biting satire, actually. I'm in a camp which would say bring back spitting image if you could just bring back all those kind of people that made those original brilliant characters. And I think satire, I'm very glad to hear you were doing some stuff with the, with the, the Daily Mash because I think it's so necessary now to try. I think satire can help us try and make sense of some of the madness that we're in at the moment. What an excellent point upon which to end. Thank you very much. But I also want to thank um, Brian Stetler very much indeed for flying in to do this. Jim Waterson, uh, Aisha, Carol Cadwallader and uh, Patrick Walker. Thank you very, very much indeed for joining us and thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening to this bonus edition of the Media Podcast and also to the Edinburgh International TV Festival and their partners ITN for donating that discussion to us. You too can support the show. Head to themediapodcast.com slash donate to keep us going. Until next time, I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and this has been a PPM production. Until we return triumphantly with your money. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.